Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. I'm your host, Anna Lindbergh Cedar. The Therapy for Real Life podcast translates therapy and burnout prevention concepts into self care strategies for everyday use. Today's episode is very personal because we will be talking about burnout prevention among healthcare workers and other helping professionals. Those who know me well know that I started my own burnout prevention practice after 20 years in nonprofit community services. In fact, I launched my practice immediately after the 2016 election when many of my nonprofit colleagues were experiencing burnout and even calling in sick to work, which is why I'm really happy that I'll be talking with Dr. Elizabeth Horovitz on the show today, who also has a long-standing career in community services and knows quite a bit about burnout prevention. And in fact, we've even crossed paths over the years in our mutual work at La Clinica de la Raza and other community-based organizations. Dr. Horovitz is now the Chief Behavioral Health Officer at Marin Community Clinics, a federally qualified health center providing vital health services to over 37,000 insured and uninsured individuals in Marin County. She also founded Healing the Helpers, a psychotherapy practice dedicated to healthcare and helping professionals. Dr. Horovitz is an expert trainer in problem-solving therapy and serves as a consultant on integrated behavioral health, trauma-informed care, and resiliency best practices for a variety of safety net and educational settings. She received her PhD and Master's of Social Work from UC Berkeley and completed her postdoctoral fellowship at UCSF's Department of Psychiatry. She is also a fellow of CHCF Healthcare Leadership Program. Dr. Horovitz, welcome to the show. Thanks, Anna. Is it okay if I call you Lizzie? That's what I'm used to calling you. Great. Lizzie, your bio alone convinces me that you know something about burnout prevention. Let's let's talk about some of the sources of stress first. Tell me a little bit about what are some of the unique stresses that healthcare workers face, whether they're current because of the global pandemic or even pre-existing. I think it's such a it's such a big question and so much of the answer is really nuanced, right? Depending on where someone works, what their role is, what kind of specialty they're in. Um, So I'll speak more specifically right now about the safety net kind of primary care setting. So primary care has always been really stressful, whether you're a physician, a nurse, a medical assistant, a therapist. So my big role is integrating behavioral health and primary care, um, and especially in the safety net, right? And, and by the safety net, we mean um, agencies, healthcare centers that work with the underserved population. Um, prior to the pandemic, burnout was an issue. You know this. You, <laughs> your mm-hmm. private practice existed before the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk about things like excessive charting burdens, 
medical records, um, having to get pre-approvals for medication, um, lots of things sort of in the system of care because of the business of healthcare that make it feel like doctoring, healing is hard to do, right? I didn't get into this profession to just be typing all, all evening after my patients leave um, to try and get tests and get results. Um, so I think that's part of it. Certainly primary care is one of the lower paid um, sectors of healthcare in spite of requiring just as much training. Um, and then of course, anytime you're working with underserved populations, um, people who are living in poverty, people with uh, less access to resources, um, more experience, experiencing um, structural racism, right? Like a lot, a lot of structural factors. Um, it's a higher risk job to begin with, right? Because just by the stories that you hear. So right there, we've got like, you know, three big things, right? The stories that we hear and just trying to help patients. We've got the actual systems issues of medical records, excessive charting burdens, just bureaucracy. Um, and then in general, it's sort of like it's a high stress, low pay profession across the allied health professions that work in primary care. So throw on top of that the pandemic um, and trying to serve the neediest populations um, already in a system that is resource constrained. And what we've seen is the burnout. It's sort of like gasoline on the fire. So everyone who was already kind of in it and doing this work because they're mission driven and, and want to make the world a better place. But all of a sudden, you know, early on, there wasn't enough access to PPE, to personal protective equipment. How do we get patients in for routine care when we don't even know how to safely do that, let alone prevent and treat this, treat this virus? So it's quite a lot of factors and you can kind of pull on any one of them, um, but that would be sort of, th those would be the main kind of buckets, I would say. Mm, that's a lot. And, and what are you seeing in terms of the effects of um, specifically the pandemic burnout that we're all going through, which as you describe is layers and layers and layers of pre-existing burnout, and then all, a bunch of crises on top of that? I think one of the things that healthcare workers experienced, particularly during the pandemic, was this sense, sense of a kind of dual reality, right? So there were, you know, everybody suffered during this pandemic. And I wanna preface this by saying like, this is not a game of like who suffered more, who had it harder. Um, and the realities for people that could work from home um, versus having to go leave their families and remember, remember way back when, when we did not know if it was safe, like what was safe and we didn't have enough KN95s or N95 masks. Um, people who had to kind of figure out childcare while they had no other option but to go into a clinic to see patients. Um, that alone, I think, kind of started things off on <laughs> a rocky path of, yes, everyone had it hard and yes, parents with kids, no matter what job you had, um, it was intense. Um, but when you don't have a choice and when you kind of feel like you're putting your family at risk, that begins to change the math 
a little bit more by saying, by going to do my job that I really care about, and I am I coming home and bringing something back to my family? Mm-hmm. And that puts a stress on everyone. You know, I've talked to so many healthcare providers who did not see themselves as a body worker before, you know, really putting their body on the line the way that a firefighter is trained to do and, and has to do as part of their work. They were not, you know, maybe they mentioned pandemics on one day in class in med school or wherever else you were trained, but really to let that set in is a talk about dual reality. That's, that's really a lot to process when you just got to get out the door and you have to do it that essential worker, no time to kind of think about it. You just have to do it. That's right. And, and I think early on, right. It was like banging pots and pans and there was like a sense of thank you so much. And then over time that kind of, you know, died off. Whereas people, you know, were still putting their lives at risk for the past, you know, several years. Um, And, you know, I think I also want to mention too, it's not just the physicians and it's not just the nurses, but you think about the medical assistants and you think about the front office workers, you can't do that work from home. Sometimes our physicians could do the work, some work from home in primary care. You could do some telehealth. That was a beautiful silver lining. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of the lowest paid workers um, really had no choice. Um, And so, you know, we're going to, I'm sure get into some of these conversations about sort of mission and, um, and um, kind of what brings us to the work, but a lot of people work in the safety net because they want to make the world a better place. They want to, um, they, it's sort of a pride of social justice, um, but it starts getting into some real tricky values questions of like, if by doing my job, which I don't get maybe paid a lot to do, but it's the job that I have. I'm putting my kids and um, parents at risk. That becomes kind of a scary math. Well, and we know that in terms of uh, contributors to burnout, feeling effective in the work that you do is so important for having a sense of mastery and competence and control and autonomy. And we've seen so many healthcare workers being put in situations where there aren't enough resources to go around. The surges just keep happening no matter how many vaccines you offer or harm reduction strategies. And so that unrelenting um, aspect to burnout is um, it's really, it's really different. And when we use the word burnout, we're talking about that, um, inability to function. Um, you know, I can't do my job properly. So that, um, international classification of diseases, definition of cynicism and distance Mm -hmm. and lack of enjoyment in your job, but we should be careful because, um, a lot of times that burnout overlaps with vicarious trauma and many of these healthcare workers probably fit the diagnostic criteria for PTSD given all their exposure. And I'm wondering how you hear healthcare providers talk about it. And I'm, I'm wondering if you notice uh, a little bit of that role resistance in that I'm the expert, I give out medicine, I give out behavioral medicine, I'm in the helper role, who me burnt out, you know, how it it seems Mm -hmm. like 
um, that would take a while just for one to catch up with their, their own personal experience when they're in the role of helping others all day long. Oh, there's so much, there's so much in what you just said, Anna, that I want to just dig in and unpack. You know, first you were talking about this concept of vicarious trauma, which I think has been spoken about a little bit more when we're talking about like the ICU workers, the ER, right, where, where they're seeing death, death and destruction every day, right? Like the, the sort of an inability to save lives, especially early on where they're starting to have those dreams and those flashbacks and intrusive um, images and memories, um, which is, you know, which is distinct from burnout. But like you said, they go together <laughs> mm -hmm. like peanut butter and jelly, um, but you can have one without the other. Mm -hmm. And then related to the second piece of what you're talking about is sort of like, what am I hearing um, amongst my colleagues around thinking about like our own well-being? And it's so funny because even among therapists, right, Anna, you and I are therapists. I will say like, I I started recognizing my own burnout, moral injury, which we'll define a little bit later too, um, kind of partway through sort of somewhere in between Delta and Omicron, mm -hmm. <laughs> where I was like, wow, I've really been like white knuckling it, all the adrenaline towards like holding my team, holding my colleagues, taking care of patients who were all in crisis, mm -hmm. um, you know, and you can run on adrenaline for a certain amount of time. And then, you know, we had the like brief respite. Um, in June of 2021. And then boom, it was like Delta Omicron. And it felt like we could not come up for air. And that's when I started feeling my own like cynicism, mm -hmm. my own sort of numbing out um, mm -hmm. around like I'd hear patient stories or I'd hear colleague stories. And I didn't have, you know, I was just kind of like that couldn't, I couldn't care in the way that I, I recognized that there was sort of a lack, an inability to feel the feelings and not that we always want to feel all the feelings. Um, and even then, like I recognized it, I named it for myself. Um, and even then I was like, oh my God, the idea of like going to find a therapist right now, you know, like holding mm -hmm. ourselves to some higher standard. Um, it's another thing to do. It's another, it's it's another like, thing ugh, on top of everything else. Oh my gosh. And, and there's there's nothing worse too than trying and either not finding someone or you finally get up the courage to talk to someone and it doesn't go well. Um, it's just because you make yourself so vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to think, Anna, like if it's bad for us, and I'm using the collective us here, maybe you have no stigma about it. And I'm always <laughs> really good about getting help for yourself when you need it. Um, but, you know, for physicians in particular, it's really hard, right? Because at least in our training, there is this concept of self-care. There is this concept of like, hey, you need to kind of take care of your stuff so that you can take care of patients, right? We talk about vicarious trauma. We talk about compassion fatigue and burnout as like, these are things to be on the lookout for. When might you need help versus supervision? Mm -hmm. now, it's kind of part of our training and it's an important part of our training. And even with that, right here, I am saying like, oh gosh, does this mean I have to go get therapy? <laughs> <laughs> but so you take, you take, um, an allied health, you know, another profession, you know, in particular, I'm, I'm, I'm calling out physicians, <laughs> um, because of their training, which is 
which is changing. Um, that's changing mm-hmm. a lot now. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you know, that come from a background of like, you know, you have to prove, you know, high perfectionism, no vulnerability, no mistakes. Um, and it's like a breeding ground for internalizing distress and not feeling safe to say, I am not, I'm not well. And for a lot of good reasons, when people apply for their boards, again, they have to say if they have a diagnosis and there's, there's definitely stories out there of people's, you know, medical credentials being called into question because they admitted that they struggled with depression, mm-hmm. which is so beyond um, horrifying, uh, especially when we know in the pandemic, one in three of us suffered from depression, anxiety, insomnia, so a diagnosable mental health condition. Um, so I think it's really hard. The stigma is real. It's, it's really hard. And I have colleagues because we have such a strong integrated behavioral health program, you know, who would say to me, you know, I refer my patients all day to behavioral health. I know they need it. Mm -hmm. I know I need it, Mm -hmm. but I like just can't even deal. one thing to know that that mental health is important and you say we are acculturated to that in our profession as psychotherapists and I think that's definitely more true than physicians and some other healthcare providers but knowing it's important and being able to access it are two different things and so in terms of some of those moral hazards that come up let's think about that so you know I hear healthcare professionals tell me all the time, Anna, you're giving me such good advice. Yes, I should take a day off work. But if I do that, I know that my work will um, get pushed over onto somebody else's desk. And they, the reality is they will have to work twice as hard because I'm gone. And I know because that happens to me when I'm in the role of covering for someone else. And so they have to decide between their own um, you know, self-care and that system that's already stressed out to the max. So it's a moral, it's a moral hazard. And that's oh. where you referenced this before moral injury can come up. Absolutely. Well, gosh, it just, it so pains me to hear that, right? Because what you hear there in that example, that is a systems issue that the individual is holding mm-hmm. as, so therefore I can't. Right. Mm -hmm. And therein is how we go from being, you know, one of the things I like to talk about and draw distinction with in my practice, but also at my health center when talking to people is like, we can be mission driven. It's, we are all mission driven people, right? None none of us are here because we wanted an easy job Mm -hmm. um, that would, you know, we would, we would become independently wealthy, right? We're here because we care deeply and feel passionately about making change. Um, but there's a difference between being mission driven and martyrdom. Mm-hmm. And um, as someone pointed out to me, yeah, you're right. Like martyrs die at the end of the story, <laughs> right? It always not, ends poorly. It never ends well. <laughs> but that line can get really fuzzy of like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I, my, my, I get, I derive all my meaning from taking care of others. And if by taking care of myself, it means that someone else is going to get dumped on, then that is not aligned with my values that can cause so much distress. Um, and yes, moral injury 
absolutely which we i i like the um i like the definition wendy dean i i will reference this article uh it's she authored an article about moral injury in healthcare, but she says moral injury describes the challenge of simultaneously knowing what care patients need, but being able to unable to provide it due to constraints that are beyond our control. And mm. insert colleagues, insert what I need for my well-being, right? Like, but that yes. feeling of like I can't because the system is set up in such a way mm-hmm. that it feels like a you know no good choice. I think of it as you have to cross your own boundaries in order to fulfill the expectations of your role that that's a rock and a hard place. Who do I, who do I satisfy? Cause I can't satisfy everybody. And so right. sometimes the easiest thing within my control and when we're stressed out, it is nice to have a feeling of control. Well, I'll just take that self-care piece off my list. Cause I don't have time for it anyways. That's something I can do. It's with control. And it feels comfortable, right? Like we can get into the like white knuckling thing where it's just like, I'm just going to keep going and going and going until, and you talk about this on, on your podcast, like until your body at some point is going to not let you do that. I mean, I think the risk that everyone is responding to, which I understand, right, is that if we say burnout, that like burnout runs the risk of pointing all the interventions at the individual. You just need to do more self-care. You just, you just need to take more vacation, do more yoga, meditate, whatever, whatever. And it ignores these like larger systems issues that contribute to it. Can, right? If we, if we look at it from a very narrow lens, right? Um, and so these issues of like, you know, how much we're asking providers to chart and all, you know, all the things we talked about at the beginning of, um, you know, just these systems issues that, that healthcare workers have to deal with in order to just give basic care to a patient. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think moral injury emerged or is still emerging as a way of sort of characterizing, like some of this is. It's not just about that I am a stressed out perfectionist trying to do this work. It's that I can't do the work that I know I need to do because of these larger structural issues. And that is what is causing my distress. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about moral injury and having to cross your own boundaries to fulfill a role that I would think inevitably leads to survivor's guilt, which is also mm-hmm. a big factor in burnout uh, for healthcare professionals being in a helping profession. You're often in a position of privilege to be able to do that support and taking in stories of trauma all day long and sickness. You um, you are inherently a survivor. You're, you're witnessing um, an intense toll and so what are, what are individuals supposed to do with that feeling, that, that moral hazard, that moral injury, that guilt that comes along with just, just surviving so that it doesn't lead to martyrdom? What would you encourage folks? Um, how would you encourage them to think about that problem of moral injury? Well, and it's funny is that I, 
I guess the moral injury there, if we're using this definition, right, of like knowing what a patient needs, but not being able to get them that because of structural issues, right? Um, because we can hear really painful stories, right? We can, we, we get training on how to do this. I would say physicians maybe somewhat less so, right? So I think there's probably a range there, right? Some of it is learning how to take care of ourselves in these moments, right? So these like rituals that we do when we hear painful stories, um, you know, I, when I was a trainee, I would, after a patient would leave, I would have a ritual around, um, like just washing my hands and wishing them well. Right. Mm -hmm. And like remembering that they're survivors mm -hmm. and that it's not my job to fix everything. Like they got to my office, they told me their story and there was something inherently valuable in that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and not trying to take all of that on. Mm -hmm. This is where grounding in the body is so important, those sensory moments absolutely. to come back to the present. Absolutely. And, and, and getting out of this idea that like, we alone are the ones that are the healers and the fixers and the doers, right? That if we can see ourselves as like fellow journeyers um, with our patients, with our clients that can help um, help so much. And also is more empowering for patients too. We don't just like do things to them to fix. Mm -hmm. um, it's helpful for them, helpful for us, for our own sustainability. Um, absolutely mindfulness, grounding, um, our own rituals, our own, you know, getting supervision, um, having colleagues that we can talk to. And just, you know, of course, you know, we never share um, personal patient information, but we can share like, gosh, this story really hit me today. And I'm struggling to figure out what to do with this, or did I do this right? And getting that feedback and support is, it's a critical part of how therapists learn. I would say medical providers don't do that, right? It's sort of like, what's What's the pathology? What's the algorithm for fixing it? Um, with trauma-informed care and screening for adverse childhood experiences, I think we're seeing a lot more training in just that like asking questions and bearing witness to without having to fix immediately um, is therapeutic, mm -hmm. right? And that like a patient's tears, that doesn't necessarily mean and interventions needed right there, like that you've created a safe space just for someone to share their story. And that's amazing. Right? And it goes for providers too. Of course, I'm kicking myself because I don't remember the study where I heard this, but just a simple intervention is tapping your colleague on the shoulder after they come out of an exam room and saying, hey, how, how was that? How was that tough conversation? That can cut burnout in half just because of that immediate connection with another healthcare providers that. so that that just being witness that physics principle of you can't observe something without changing its very nature so that that turns out it's true for us as well Lizzie I want to get your thoughts on this here's what Anne Helen Peterson says when she talks about the um, systemic burnout that we're talking about and how that can't be solved in individual response. It's almost like the national GDP of burnout is too high. Self-care is not mm. uh, enough to balance the budget. And when I spoke with her on the podcast, her two suggestions were, well, in light of that, do the best you can to reduce your sparks 
on others. So you're not spreading burnout. She gave the example of go ahead and schedule, send that email. Don't send it in the middle of the night. So people think you should be emailing back and forth in the middle of the night. Um, And the other one was, you know, given that, that budget deficit, um, go ahead and do the best you can to create a little micro culture, you know, a little micro climate culture of uh, restorative self-care and caregiving. And you're an expert in problem solving therapy, and I'm sure you have other interventions that you recommend to clients. How do you counsel healthcare workers to advocate for themselves in that interaction with the environment? And how do they foster a sense of safety or respite given all the demands that they face? I think I would echo um, what your guest said uh, in the in the other podcast in the sense that I think everyone right now is like looking for the quick fix, right? Just tell me what to do. Fine. Okay. I'm burned out or everyone's burned out or we all have moral injury. And so just who, who, is it on me? Do I need to do more yoga or is it on the administrators or is it the politicians? Just like, tell me where, what, solve racks, right? Yes, yes. And I think that, you know, what we know from the literature is that like, it's never just one thing. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, the folks that are like, stop calling it burnout. Don't use burnout because you're putting it all on the individual. That's true. That's not okay to put it, put it all on an individual. However, as individuals, we all have responsibility to take care of ourselves in the way that we need to, right? This is the oxygen mask principle mm-hmm. of putting, putting that oxygen mask on ourselves so that we can help others. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think we know now that, you know, putting too much on the, like, you've got to put your oxygen mask on, make sure you're doing yoga before and after work or whatever is that's damaging. That's harmful because it discounts all the other stuff that we're all swimming in. Okay. Mm -hmm. But we know that certain personal characteristics like perfectionism and, um, kind of that goes along with like high self-criticism and Mm -hmm. a couple of other kind of personality traits, um, really high standards for ourselves and others that, puts us in a vulnerable spot for burnout and moral injury. Okay. So we do have to take care of ourselves and those personal traits also, yeah, they interact with this environment. So what about the environment also does need to change. Right. And so I imagine some of your, some of your listeners might be frontline workers or just sort of like, I'm doing, I'm doing my job. Like, what do you mean change the environment? What, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, some of this is about leadership, right? Some of this is about leaderships at organizations reckoning with, you know, what I think is a real silver lining of this pandemic is that workers and workforce are starting to say, oh, I'm not going to do this anymore, Hmm. (laughs) right? So Hmm. one in five healthcare workers have left the profession since the start of the pandemic. Some of that was retirement, but a lot of it was about burnout or moral injury. And so, you know, historically healthcare and anyone in healthcare knows it's a business. It is a business. And that is what makes it, what makes um, it so challenging for mission-driven people um, when it's like, see more patients, do more with less, da, 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 mm-hmm. right? And so we can talk about payment reform and that changing, but that's kind of down the road. 
But you think about the feeling of what does it feel like to work at an organization? One of the things the pandemic gave us was the realization that there's a lot we can do via telehealth. Not everybody needs to be on site every day. Mm-hmm. That's beneficial for patients as well as providers and staff. This idea of like, yeah, having a hybrid work schedule where some days you're at home, you can be at home. Um, and some days you need to be in there. That's a big deal. And we still, there are still health centers that are like, no, everybody full, you need to be 1.0 FTE full-time on site every day, eight to five. And that is not realistic with the way the world has moved and for the better. Um, so that's sort of the like larger structural piece in, in terms of organizations, or you may have, um, administrators listening. Certainly I wear both hats. I'm a clinician and I'm an administrator. I also work with both clinicians and administrators and there's a role for everyone, right. To advocate. And I think, you know, you mentioned earlier, and I think I sort of trailed off, but sort of what sort of individual level, sort of, is it problem solving therapy or what other modalities? Certainly, you know, I love pulling from DBT. I love the mindfulness-based work, acceptance and commitment therapy. You asked me about problem solving therapy, which is, you know, I like problem solving sort of like once you've done some other interventions, sort of like once you've done some motivational interviewing and you're ready to like make a change or you've done the four solution analysis and you're saying, okay, I want to fix something, but like, what and how? Um, That's what I'm curious to hear you talk more about is where, where you would get started. Say you're talking to somebody who's been in this profession for 20 years and is already burned out, or you're talking to somebody who's thinking about entering the profession and they just heard us talk about all these stresses and how hard it is. You know, where, where should someone begin? I mean, I think one of the things that brings so many of the various modalities together, like whether, you know, you're a DBT therapist or an acceptance and commitment uh, therapy therapist, right? Like a lot of them, it comes down to um, what are your values? Like what's really important to you? Um, And I know you've had a podcast before on just like there's a lot of different things that can be values in the, in the world. Right. And I think you've even created some lists. There are certainly plenty out there, but getting super clear on what your values are, because it's never just, right. We talked about mission driven, right. Uh, One of my values is, you know, social justice or making the world a better place, or you can fill in the blank with, right. But we also all are full human beings with many, many values, Um, family, spirituality, physical wellness, mental wellness, right? And just like a place I always start with clients is just like, let's name them. And it does, you not need to start with them in an order, just like put them down on paper of like, what makes you, you, um, what, what are sort of your, your guideposts in this crazy world where we get pulled in a million different directions professionally in our relationships outside of work, um, you know, we're asked to donate to a million different causes, right? What really matters to you? Because that is the place to start from, not external, not like, oh, I should do more of this, or I should do more of that, but really internal. And you've talked about wise voice. I know. Um, yeah. I appreciate, and- I appreciate that. Ta- you know, when you talk about values, it, it 
goes right along with that creativity. That's such a good antidote to burnout. And it allows for flexibility and seasonality. You know, what you value when you're first getting started in your career and ready to take on the world and change absolutely everything might be different than what you value mid-career, late career, when you're balancing perhaps, you know, values beyond work. Yes. Family, things change. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Things change and, and our own health, right? As we age too, um, changes. You asked me about problem solving therapy and just to share very briefly, you know, where I think that fits in. But so some of the work I do is around like getting clear on values and making sure the actions we're taking are aligned with those values. Sometimes like, I don't know if you had this, but I could imagine even just a listener kind of listening to this conversation being like overwhelmed of like, I don't even, like all of this seems too huge and I don't even know. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I I know what my values are, but like, where do I start? And Mm -hmm. if I want to fix something, I can't like, I can't fix all the things that are wrong in my job and healthcare Mm -hmm. in this country. Um, And so one of the things we do in problem solving therapy is also just sort of so like, get it out, like write out every single problem, (laughs) just like do not write a paragraph, Mm -hmm. just like a little bullet point. Right. And we kind of categorize and kind of sort of maybe name which ones are bigger. And a lot of times um, we find it really helpful to not start with the biggest, scariest problem. Um, So a lot of work we do in problem solving therapy is is breaking down big problems into smaller, you know, all problems usually have like are made up of multiple components Mm -hmm. um, that are more manageable and targetable. Um, But really what I want to get across right now is just that like, you do not need to pick the biggest, hardest problem right now. Like a lot of times, you know, maybe, uh, oh my God, I don't exercise enough. And okay, well, we know that's values aligned for you, but it's also not the most intimidating, stressful problem. Like maybe there's a lot going on at work. That's totally overwhelming. Even the work stuff, even though the work stuff may be the thing that's getting to you, um, sometimes starting on the edge Mm-hmm. a smaller problem that feels like I know how to solve this. Like I used to run before the pandemic. I used to run for 30 minutes, three times a week. I know I can do that. I can commit to that. We usually say start there, right? Like mm-hmm. start somewhere else mm-hmm. because often change on the periphery is going to trickle in. It's the only time I really I'm like, yes, trickle down, but mm-hmm. it will trickle <laughs> It will trickle in to your, your overall sense of well-being and, and give you some more energy, hopefully, to start looking at and pulling apart some of the problems that feel so insurmountable. Yes. The, the common scenario I'm used to hearing is someone comes to me and they say, I'm so burnt out. I obviously need to change jobs. The last thing I could do right now is interview and brag about myself. So we have to break that problem up into doing something pleasurable and feeling good at it. Maybe go play putt putt for a weekend, get a hole in one and and finding that sense of self before you can get in touch with what you want. And then a later problem, go out and brag about it and get a job to go. I love that. I love that, Anna, because you also just said like, yeah, reconnect with your sense of self. And I think so much of what I see in healthcare workers and professionals is like, 
I equal my job. Mm-hmm. I am my job. And mm-hmm. so if my job is not going the way that feels right, um, things are feeling out of control, I'm burned out. Therefore, I, Lizzie Horvitz, I'm not, ha- I'm not happy and I'm mm-hmm. failing. Yeah. When it's like, well, we're whole people. What else, what else you got? You know, you've got kids or you're a, you're a, you're a, um, taking care of your parents or you have a pet or you have, you know, you love to travel, like all of these things. And those are sometimes easier places to start pulling a thread. Well, Lizzie, before you mentioned your own process of burnout prevention, and I can relate to that. I, I know for me during this pandemic, I had some tough spots myself where trying to dole out good behavioral medicine and then trying to give it to myself and never having been through it. I had to go outside of this time and read texts like Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which I highly recommend to anyone who's feeling burnt out or looking for a sense of meaning and purpose. Um, But I, I would like to hear some more examples, you know, how to make this really practical. How have you applied some of these concepts to your own life in terms of burnout prevention? Yeah. You know, I think it's so important for people to hear that therapists are humans too and um, need to stay on top of our well-being and and do this dance, right, of recognizing what is it, you know, what are my self-care, like the personal things I need to do as a human based on who I am, right, and my tendencies and my stress points or vulnerabilities, um, as well as sort of like what are the bigger picture things, right, whether it's advocating at work for certain policies to change, or if we're not in a position at work to do that, but maybe it's, you know, broader, right? Like advocacy on a larger policy scale. Um, So, you know, I think for me, some of it was that um, burnout really did creep in for me. Like it really, like I, but I, you know, was starting to recognize those, you know, those feelings that like that sort of chest tightening, that sort of, um, you know, I'd hear stories about like, oh, everyone in the, no agency in the community is fully staffed and I would feel angry, but then I'd just kind of throw up my hands and be like, well, there's nothing I can do, Mm -hmm. Um, which is just a terrible, it's just, it's just a heartbreaking feeling. So Mm -hmm. the first thing was, was recognizing it. Um, it took me a while to recognize the own stigma I had, my own stigma around like help seeking. I've had great therapists in the past, but for whatever reason, Anna, Mm -hmm. during this pandemic, I was like, oh, I have to go find someone and no one's going to understand like just all the reasons everyone we throw out. Well, you were right in the middle of it, you know, right in the middle of burnout and not not feeling like it. Yeah. And I was frustrated too, right? Like I have insurance can't get you. It's hard to find a therapist that takes insurance. Um, and so I was mad at the, I was, I call it the donut hole, right? You have insurance, you can't get it. If you have Medi-Cal, um, or uninsured, at least in Marin County, you know, wow, the agency I work at will take care of you. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but, you know, aside from that, you need to pay out of pocket. It's really expensive. And you asked me about that earlier. And I did want to comment on that is if we're talking about, you know, advocating to like, to address moral injury, the the whole mental health care system is so broken. And you mentioned universal mental health care and 
let's do another podcast on that. Yes. Um, Cause that's a huge, huge issue. Um, so it was really, I found myself talking with friends first to be like, Oh God, I'm feeling this way, but I don't want to go to a therapist. And they were other therapist friends and everyone was sort of like, yeah, God, me too. Um, <laughs> and kind of like, rec- like naming in ourselves, like, Oh my gosh, we are totally stigmatizing the, like the help seeking process. And we need to support each other in doing this. Um, I also, you know, really turned up my meditation practice. So I'll just share briefly that, um, I did a meditation practice on burnout. And one of the things that was so helpful, there was a mantra in there that was, it is okay that I am feeling this way and I do not need to solve it all right now. It is okay that I'm feeling this way and I do not need to solve it all right now, right? That's that acceptance, radical mm-hmm. acceptance, mm-hmm. Um, but also right hope, like not like I'm just going to be like, cool, I'm, I'm, I'm down for feeling like this forever, but I just don't need to fix it now immediately. Mm-hmm. And something about that script really flipped it for me. It was like an aha moment. And um, I, re- I really held that with me. I kept repeating it to myself. And, um, actually woke up from a nap one day on my day off and was like, oh my God, wait, if I felt that helped, I can help others. Right. And, um, healing the helpers and this whole idea of, you know, thinking about all of my friends in healthcare who were all feeling burned out and didn't want to get help and all this, like, so it kind of evolved so that in this, in its own way, starting my practice was a way for me to one, diversify what I was doing professionally so that I was not over-identifying with one position, um, but also doing something meaningful, but in a different way, I could be creative. Um, it was new. I got to reach back out to you and, you know, connect in a different way um, to the professional world. Um, and that, along with my own therapy, along with my own, like, you know what, I do need to go hiking three times a week. Like, that is important. You know, just kind of the basics. Um has really helped, but I would say, you know, Anna, it's a practice. Mm, I love your example, Lizzie, because we don't have to lose you from the profession. And we are seeing that, like you said, one out of five healthcare workers have left since the pandemic. And, and, you know, when I talk to folks about this great resignation that is happening for sure, it's a real thing. And if you're not at the point where you want to leave your job, I invite people to think, well, okay, well, that great resignation still applies to you. Is there one part of your job that you could resign from, you know, like working hours or working evenings or uh, doing this project that just totally drains you and, and somebody else would be happy to do it? Can you swap or can you give yourself a little mini promotion like you did? You opened your private practice and it, it lets you use that creativity and thrive but it could be a promotion, you know, maybe it's a hobby, maybe it's something like you said, the hikes, but something that makes you feel a little bit more like yourself, you know? And so in terms of role burnout, what's burning you out and what lights you up. And so that, that, that slow as you go, don't, yes. up, but keep working towards that balance. I think yes. that the patience that goes along with it that you described is really important. Oh my gosh. And, and, and that goes back to sort of what we were talking about. You don't necessarily have to solve the big problem. Like, do I resign or do I not resign? Like pick a thing, pick a small thing. It could be on the edge. Mm-hmm. Start there. Mm-hmm. More will be revealed. 
start with the list and you'll be, you'll be happy to know that you do run out of problems at some point. If you keep writing them down, you reach the end of the page so that even that is comforting. It's like, oh, I can see them. It's manageable. I can take one at a time. Well, thank you, Lizzie, Dr. Horowitz. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today and hear all of your expertise. I appreciate uh, you cheering everybody on as they're listening in and thinking about how they will personalize their own burn, burnout prevention practice. Thank you, Anna, for everything you do. And hey, I'm a fan. Oh, that means so much to me. Thank you. That's Thank you so much. <laughs>